plugged into so many devices here. Hold on. All right. Well, I am glad to be back with you. I'm glad to be here and us being in fellowship together. Uh, I'm grateful for the time and worship that you were able to have last week with Tim. I'm also grateful you got to hear him give you a little bit of an update and a little bit of an education on what this thing called the Cares Fellowship that we're a part of is. Um, Tim is our resident historian in the fellowship. Uh, he knows more about the fellowship than I think anybody that is alive today in the fellowship. And so he's the right guy to ask if you were to have any questions. So I'm glad you got to hear from him and hear his heart through the word last week. That's exciting to me. Um, Tim's a good friend. But we have been in the midst of this series called Bigger. And uh, you've heard me say this maybe a dozen times already, but uh, my friend had a podcast for years called the 100 Foot Jesus Podcast. And it was based on the premise that how different would our day be if we woke up every morning to a 100 foot Jesus standing at the foot of our bed? How, how much would that change our perspective? How much would that uh, change the way we went about our day? And in that lens today, we want to look at this word fellowship. I, I, had, I had sent an email out, but we want to look at this word. And it's a word that gets thrown about and used a lot in the church today. Uh, it gets used over and over, the word fellowship. Um, it actually can be used kind of generically. We've we've done this, haven't we? Haven't we taken words that have deep-rooted meaning and then we've used them so commonly that we we remove the deep meaning from them, right? So fellowship falls into that category where... um, Do you want me to use that? I guess so. I have to change my box. Yeah, I get it. Is that better? Now I don't have to yell at you? Hold on. I think it's just a ploy to get me to stand still. Okay, it worked. All right, so the word can be kind of generic. We say things like, we have a fellowship hall at a church, or we're going to gather for fellowship. But sometimes that could just be kind of a generic usage of the term. So I want to take some time today in a little bit of time together to talk about this because I want to encourage you, I actually think we're quite good at fellowship as a church from the truest definition of the term. It's something that I think that we shine at and that's exciting to me to talk about. But it's something that also, if we're not careful, we'll slip into rhythms where we lose the true definition of a term. It happens all the time, right? Something that has deep meaning at the front end becomes common and then it loses its deep meaning. So if we put this stuff in front of our attention often as possible, I think that helps us. So we want to look at this word fellowship. It's important to Jesus. If we're going to have a bigger view of Jesus, we need to have a bigger view of how he defines things. And he defines fellowship a little differently than maybe we do whenever we're naming a room that people gather in. Um, The Greek word is actually koinonia. Maybe you've heard that before, but the Greek term is koinonia. And that actually means this. It means intimate spiritual communion and participative sharing in a common religious commitment and spiritual community. That's how the Greek definition is defined. Basically, it's a deep-rooted communion around eternal beliefs. So when Jesus uses the term fellowship or koinonia, he's using it to talk about himself. 
He's using it to talk about the Father, but the Greek culture would have used it to say that you can have fellowship with fellow Greeks if you can gather around this common belief system. And so what, what he's doing is turning it on its head. And it's a, a bigger view of Jesus, I think it, 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 it equates to or equals a renewing of our mind. I believe in my story, maybe in yours too, that the deeper we fall in love with Jesus, the, the different we, we start to think differently. Have you found that to be true in your own story? You start to process information differently. You start to process your decision making differently. Your filters change. What once was really important to you might not be as important to you. What maybe felt like an idol at one point in your life doesn't feel like it has a grip on you as heavily anymore. I think the deeper and bigger Jesus becomes, the deeper we fall in love with Jesus, the more our minds get renewed. That's actually backed up by what Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Listen to what he says. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. He's saying that, that when, we, when, we ex, when we walk with God, when we receive this amazing good news of Jesus, he says that we should allow that to renew our minds. We should allow that to be the thing that changes the way we process information because then we can test what's important to us and test what we're doing and test what we're deciding and test what we're spending all that stuff and then ask ourselves in discernment is this really something that brings deep-rooted pleasure to my God and the only way that happens is if the the love of God takes over your heart and works its way into your mind and starts to change the way you think and process information. I know it's true in my life. I can't speak for you, but I do believe that the formula exists in Scripture that when you meet Jesus and fall deeper in love with Jesus, it starts to change the way you process information. It changes the way you think. It changes what is high importance to you. Certain things that maybe you would have spent a lot of money on before you met Jesus. Now you look at that and say, well, that's not really that important to me anymore. Or something that you devoted a, a, a huge amount of your time to and you met Jesus. And then all of a sudden you think, well, that's not as important to me as it once was. That's kind of what Paul is talking about. He's saying that we're able to change the way we process information and make decisions because Jesus in us is renewing our minds, changing the way we think. So what does Jesus have to say about the importance of fellowship? With that in mind, if we're going to process information differently, if we're going to think about things differently because of Jesus, what does that have to do with how Jesus defines fellowship? Well, I think it's a pretty tricky question because a case can be made to say that every time Jesus spoke, fellowship was something that he was talking about. Because he's saying that because of Jesus, we have deep-rooted fellowship with the Father now. We have fellowship with God. We have a relationship with God where we can have 
fellowship with him. This like-minded gathering where our minds are being renewed into more of the likeness of God. Jesus talks about that in a way that says we actually have access to God so we can have fellowship with him, fellowship with God. And then he says, out of that, you become like-minded with other people who love Jesus, who love my father, he says. And then you gather together to accomplish the will of God together. So you have fellowship with God and you have fellowship with one another. So a case could be made that every time Jesus is speaking about eternity, which is a lot, every time he talks about his father, which is a lot, every time he talks about what's available to us because of those things, he's talking about fellowship. But there's this awesome passage, this moment in John 13, that Jesus says something so profound and so amazing, it literally changes the game. It changes the rules. It changes the boundaries. It changes how we move forward. He says this in John 13, 34 through 35. He says, a new commandment I give to you. He's talking to his disciples. That you love one another. Now, Here's the, here's the thing that's, that I'm going to stop and pause there for a second because it's important. He's not saying anything new yet. So he starts off looking at these people who have followed him and said, I'm going to give you a new commandment, something brand new. Now, if you're following Jesus, and it's whether you realize it or not, at the tail end of his time with you, and he says to you, I'm about to give you a new commandment, your ears better perk up. Your ears better perk up because this hasn't happened. This, this hasn't happened since the voice of God spoke to Moses on top of a mountain in the Old Testament that a command was given by God to his people. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you a new commandment. Waited with bated breath. What's he going to say? What's the command? And this is what he says. Love one another. Now, if you're in the room, you're probably thinking, if it's me, I'm probably thinking, well, that's not new. That actually is one of the originals, Jesus. So now you're waiting because you know he's not done speaking yet. Jesus' words always have purpose and deep-rooted meaning behind them. And he's going to follow it up by saying this then. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. That's the game changer. The new commandment isn't just to love one another. That's an old commandment. That's an original commandment. But what Jesus is saying is, now you know what it looks like. Now you know what to model your love after. It's not just words on a page anymore. It's not stories of, of patriarchs and matriarchs of old. It's not these stories of people that honored God with their lives. It's not just that. You're hearing this from the absolute Son of God. I have perfectly loved you, and I have perfectly loved others, and you have witnessed every step of it. Matter of fact, I'm going to make sure that it gets written down so that ages later people know how I did it. People know how I loved. People know who I spent time with. People know who I got upset with. People know who I loved and who I drew towards. And when I threw a party and parties were thrown, who I sat with and who I spent time with, and how I interacted with people, even when they were awful to me. All of it. Jesus is saying the new command isn't to love one another. It's to do it the way I do it. That's the new command. 
Jesus is saying that if you are in me and I am in the Father, that means you and the Father and me are one. We are together in this. Therefore, you have seen me love you in your failures, in your shortcomings, in your mistakes, in your worst moments. You have seen how I interacted with you. He doesn't say it in this moment, but what he says later on essentially is you're going to see people do awful things to me. And then you will see me die. But take heart. That's not the end of the story. So in the moment, let's give these guys some grace. They don't understand completely what is being said to them. Us sitting here today, we have the full picture, a better picture. So the new command is to love one another the way Jesus loves us, the way Jesus loved others. That's the new command. But then he goes on to say this. This is the part that should be, if you haven't felt a little bit of a gut punch yet, this is where it's probably going to get you. It's where it gets me at least. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How is the world going to know that I belong to Jesus and that you belong to Jesus? How are they going to know? It's, it's going to be because when they see your life, when they see my life, it's going to be reflective of what we see in Scripture as the patterns of how Jesus lived his life. These guys all got martyred, chased down, and killed because they were associated with and lived lives like Jesus. It became obvious to a watching world what it looked like. Later on in Acts, they get arrested and the Pharisees meet together and they say, these are just ordinary, common fishermen, but we notice that they have spent time with Jesus. It's working. Down through the ages, it's working. Do you understand? Does that make sense? That is so life-altering truth. That's the renewing of our minds. It's not just loving one another and exchanging pleasantries. That's what we have cheapened fellowship down to. We have cheapened fellowship down to being nice to one another for an hour every week. And we shake hands and we smile and we're fake with one another. And then we call that church. We call that fellowship. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, you have spent time with me. Paul backs it up and says, if you have spent time with Jesus, let him change the way you think. Let his word change the way you process information. Let his word change how you view what is important and what is unimportant. And then find other people that are thinking like that and gather together and encourage one another and live that out. And the world will notice that and they will know who you belong to. They will know you are my disciples. Not because you wore the right t-shirt, said the right thing, or attended the right building on Sundays. Not because you had the right last name or in some kind of club. It'll be because you love people like Jesus does. That's how a world knows that you belong to Jesus. So loving one another, again, wasn't the new command by itself. 
So here's the question, if we're going to do the math. What does it look like when people who are indwelled with the Spirit of living God decide that they're going to fellowship, truest sense of the word, fellowship together, to love God together, to be indwelled with the love of God together, and then do that together so that when the world sees a group of people sitting in random chairs all over a weird parking lot in the middle of Warrington, they will know, not just because we're sitting here, but because of how we love one another and how we love them, that we are his disciples. So what does that look like? Well, I think the best example of it comes from Acts 2. I sent this out. If you had a chance to read it, I hope you did. Uh, Acts 2, 42 through 47. Maybe you've heard me say this before. I believe that Journey Church is an ongoing hypothesis. The ongoing hypothesis is the passage of Scripture we're about to read can happen again. That's the hypothesis. So everything we do, for you science nerds, Everything we do is running through the scientific method of proving that hypothesis to be true. If we try something and it doesn't seem to accomplish what we see happen in Acts 2, 42 through 47, we won't do it anymore. Or we'll work on tweaking it to make sure it's better. And if people say, hey, if we do something and it works and it accomplishes this and we're moving towards that and someone sitting in a seat out here says, hey, I don't like how you do that. We can be like, okay. I'm sorry you feel that way. But it's accomplishing what we see in Scripture that a healthy church looks like. So we're going to do it. And this is how we're going to do it. So listen to what happens when the people of God devote themselves to the right things. And I want you to pay attention to that word, devoted. Think about it through the lens of what were they devoted to. And then ask yourself, ask, ask in your heart of hearts, what are you truly devoted to? Acts 2, 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved this is the gold standard definition of fellowship. This is the gold standard definition of fellowship. When it comes to being together as the church, this is what we're striving to become. So why do we have meals in one another's homes? Why do we want to do that? Why are community groups something we emphasize? Why, why do we try to have groups together that just dig into the word together? Why do we do these things? Why are, the, why are the, the branches of our tree all doing some of the exact same things? Studying the word together, praying together, walking through life together. Do you realize? You might not even realize you're doing it. That's the most beautiful thing about fellowship when it's done healthily. You don't even know completely that you're doing it. You guys realize what you've done this week? Just this week. You have completely funded a family to stay with their baby at DuPont 
because you gave money for them to be able to stay there. You did that. Maybe not all of you knew that was happening, but, but, or all of you contributed to that financially, but you've prayed for this family. You've prayed for Jason and Megan, and then you rallied around them. And when they had a need, what did you do? You gave to it. You might not have went and sold a field and then called the church and said, hey, I just sold a field. I want to distribute the money from selling the field to the people that need it. That's not how you did it. You, you used Venmo. It's a little different now than, than when this was written. But that's the thing about fellowship. These people, it wasn't a calculated move. It wasn't like, okay, I'm a Christian now. I'm a follower of Jesus, so now I need to make sure that I'm at this, and I'm at this, and I'm at this, and I'm at this. That's not how it worked. Because their minds were renewed, being with the body just became part of their natural rhythms, the things that they desired to be at, the things that were most important to them, the things they were most drawn to. It became about fellowship with one another. And look what happens. Look what happens. Follow the math because the sequence is important. What are they devoted to? They're devoted to the word being taught. They're devoted to digging into the truth. They're devoted to breaking the bread and prayers, to communion and praying together. And then they're devoted to being together, being like-minded. It says that all the believers had all things in common. That is hyperbole, by the way. They didn't all just automatically like the same things and dress the same way. That's, that's hyperbole in there, to say that all things in common. What that means is they all loved Jesus together. And when it came to the priority of being like Christ, they, wanted to, they were drawn together to be like-minded in that. And they found themselves selling their possessions and selling their belongings and bringing the proceeds to all as any had need. They, if they found out there was a need and they were sitting on a piece of land and they said, this person is homeless and they're part of the body, I will sell my land or I will build them a house on my land and I will give it to them. That's how the church was functioning high, high level of generosity that was being shown. They were attending the temple together. They were breaking bread in their homes, meaning they were always eating meals together. And they received that food with glad and generous hearts. They sat and they rejoiced in the provision of God. And then look what happens. They were praising God, verse 47, and then what? You've probably heard me talk about this before. Having favor with all the people. Having favor with all the people. If the formula is followed, part of the math adds up at the end to have favor with the people around you. Favor with your neighbors, favor with your coworkers, favor with your family members, favor with one another. You gain that because the love of Christ starts to exude out of the body of Christ into the community. And people are like, well, that looks different. For some reason, the church has stopped emphasizing that part of living. out. It wasn't just, I'm going to move into this neighborhood and I'm going to start giving stuff away on Sunday mornings because I want to gain favor. That's not how they did it. They just loved Jesus together, and they loved their neighbor. They loved one another out of their love of Jesus. And then look what happens. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. 
Do we want God to add to our number day by day those who are being saved? You're allowed to answer that question. Yes. Yes, we do. It's not so that we can just brag about how big a church is. It's because we want to see more people in love with Jesus. There are some of you sitting in this parking lot with us that last year weren't sitting in this parking lot with us. So God is doing something through the body of Christ. He is gaining favor in neighborhoods because you are loving Jesus together. That is fellowship. It's the gold standard. It says that God added to their number daily those who were being saved. Daily. But the church was doing the work of loving Jesus consistently, doing that together. So the love of God comes into our lives. It changes the way we think. We draw together with other like-minded believers and we grow together. When we're doing something out of step with that, we're willing to say it to a brother or sister. Hey, what you're doing doesn't look, smell, or talk, or anything like Jesus. That should probably stop. We're willing to say those things to each other. Why? Because we love Jesus together. Because the love of God resides in us, and we want to share that with one another in high-capacity relationships. Church, you're already doing a lot of this. It's super encouraging to preach this message. It's unbelievably encouraging to be your pastor. Megan and I were away last week, and we got this selfie from Sue Bowers taken of uh, the best angle she could get of everybody at the baseball game. And Megan, Megan saw it first, and then she showed it to me, and we were both like genuinely sad while we're at the beach, genuinely sad that we weren't at an Iron Pigs game with you. And uh, to be fair, I like the beach way more than I like minor league baseball but I don't like the beach more than I like you. It is a joy to be a part of the body of Christ. It is a joy to look forward to see what God might do here. But this, in Acts 2, 42 through 47, that hypothesis, that takes work. That takes a resolute commitment to Jesus above all else. And that happens way more than just a couple hours in a building on a Sunday. It's about way more than what we attend or what we give our money to. It's how we live our lives and choosing to live those together. So it is a joy to do that together. It is a joy to celebrate that together. It is a joy to walk through that together, even when things aren't Great. And we had a lot of really exciting announcements to share with you this morning. It feels like mountaintop stuff, right? That's not always how it goes. Sometimes the announcements that are made and the things we're praying over and the people we're ministering to, they are suffering and they are hurting. We've experienced loss over the past year too. There are people not sitting here that are with our Lord that would be here. It's not always rainbows and butterflies. But as long as it's Jesus, it's always good because he is good. So we're going to pray together. We're going to sing a song all to us together. And I want that to be our anthem before we just enjoy the part of fellowship that is part of that breaking bread together and enjoying a meal together. We're going to have burgers and hot dogs and a 
a bunch of stuff. You guys brought way too many chocolate chip cookies, if that's even possible. I'm sure they will go fast. But I want to pray for us, and then we're going to sing together, and then I'll give some instruction on the meal. Would you stand and pray with me as the band comes up? God, fellowship was your idea. The Father, Son, Holy Spirit have always been in fellowship. You pass that joy along to us by walking with us and having fellowship with us, choosing to bring yourself towards us, choosing to give your one and only Son as the all-sufficient, all-atoning sacrifice for our sins to bring us into right relationship with a holy God. That is fellowship in its truest sense. And then, because you are so kind and so generous and so gracious, you give even more. You give us yourself and you say, now do that with one another. And you, we get to have these little tastes of heaven little tastes of gathering together with the body of Christ, with you present with us. That's church. That's ecclesia. That's koinonia. And we are grateful to be a part of it. God, may you captivate us with your love. And may this song be our anthem. Precious cornerstone, sure foundation. You are faithful to the end. Lord, we're going to sing, you are everything. You're the promise. We're going to ask you to be all to us. And I pray that that is the heart's cry of this church, that you are all to us. In your name we pray these things. Amen.